Good morning and welcome to another edition of Better Living, a show about the people and organisations that make an impact around Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm your host for this week, Ian Canfield from Alt 103.7. Thank you for joining me. Later in this hour, we'll focus on our senior population during this COVID-19 crisis and an organisation that is focused on helping seniors throughout DFW, the Senior Source. But first, we've all seen the lines of vehicles waiting to pick up food from food banks across America. And joining us to talk about providing food, education and resources during this time is Julie Butner, President and CEO of the Tarrant Area Food Bank. Um, Julie, uh, you started this job in January, so this is still a relatively new position for you. It certainly is, Ian. I started the job January 7th of this year, just before the COVID crisis. That must have been quite some learning curve, because everyone in every walk of life has uh, had to live, I guess, you know, the most prevalent phrase is a new normal. But to figure out how to make the best use of a food bank and adapt to COVID-19 must have been something that was uh, kind of made you take a step back and go, oh, now I have to do this. <laughs> it certainly was. It sounds like a, an understatement to me, really. I, I feel like I had just gotten my toes on the ground, you know, 60 days or so into a new job. And that in and of itself is relatively disruptive. And then um, COVID came I feel uh, very fortunate, however. I've, I've been in other crises in my life, uh, my working career, uh, starting with Operation Desert Storm some years ago, um, where I was activated um, as a, um, an officer in the military in Germany, mm. uh, and we had to convert a 100-bed hospital to a triage hospital that would provide provide a thousand beds so that was kind of my first initiation into crisis and then i worked in the airline industry during 9-11 wow and so dealt with uh that uh crisis and huge disruption to our business and 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 the work that we did day to day was involved in a crisis management team there so uh what you have quite the resume what uh what initially brought you to the tarrant food bank you know, years and years ago, as a student at TCU, I volunteered here um, a couple of different times. And so I had that exposure to Tarrant Area Food Bank, but honestly had never thought of a career in food banking. I've, I've worked um, my whole career in uh, hospitality, food services, and health care in a variety of different positions uh, with uh, several different companies and was contacted by a search firm about this CEO president position uh, at Tarrant Area Food Bank and really was um, hesitant. And uh, they sent me the the job uh, responsibilities. It was quite extensive, and I I took uh, a good deal of time to to read through it and consider my experiences and what I might be able to do to to support the organization and, and to support my community. And it just it lined up perfectly, and I certainly wouldn't have expected it. So I, I got very excited about the opportunity and the work that Tarrant Area Food Bank does, 
and I'm very happy to be here, crisis and all. Yeah. Well, it seems like you are the experienced person with a crisis. So when the COVID-19 came from out of nowhere, I'm sure the people thought, there you go. See, that's why we took on that Julie Butner. She's got a history in crisis management. It was almost like it was meant to be. Really, truly it was. It just it lined up and then the fact that this happened... Uh, and, and with my experience, it just it was meant to be. Now, give us a little bit of uh, history on the food bank, because obviously you've been there since January, but the Tarrant Food Bank uh, dates back to 1982. It does. Tarrant Area Food Bank um, covers not only Tarrant County, but 12 additional uh, counties in the Fort Worth area. Um, and we started in 1982. A couple of community members uh, made a decision to stand it up and and uh, we have grown since. There are 200 uh, recognized food banks across the United States, and Tarrant Area Food Bank is one of them. And uh, the benefit in being part of that network, which is all under the umbrella of Feeding America, is uh, because we are recognized, we do receive about 30 or 35 percent of our food donations from the United States Department of Agriculture and the Texas Department of Agriculture, uh, which is very, very helpful. So in addition to the manufacturers and the grocery stores and the public who donate food product to us, we are also supported by the local and federal government. Now, obviously, uh, people have, have had to adapt in many ways in the last few months, but for the overall mission of the Tarrant Food Bank, what it was back in 1982, is it essentially still the same in 2020? It is. It is essentially the same. Our mission is to provide access to food, education, and resources for those people who need us. Um, and so we are a safety net. Um, you know, unfortunately, hunger will never go away. There's always a time in someone's life when they're in a crisis. Maybe they've lost their job, maybe they've recently divorced, um, but some episode in their life uh, presents a crisis and they need a safety net to get them through until they can find the income and the resources they need um, to purchase and procure food. So mm -hmm. we act as that safety net. And I guess you see people from all different walks of life. I mean, the overall thing is you help out people who are in need of food. But in terms of backgrounds and circumstance, um, it can be very wide and varied. That's true. I, I think there's a misnomer out there that um, th those who ask for our services are only um, you know, chronic users and those who are down and out, and that is not the case. Uh, we have people who have never, especially during this pandemic, who have never had to ask for our services or our support for food ever, mm. and um, having to do that for the first time. Um, there are others that are you know, elderly uh, who are no longer able to work, uh, that did not prepare for retirement in a way that they could uh, completely support themselves that ask for our services. There are veterans, military veterans, that um, are transitioning from the military world that need our support. Just, uh, it is truly, truly varied. If someone came to a food bank, I think uh, uh, it would be quite eye-opening for them to see the, the, the different types of people that are there that need your help. I think it I think it would be now, there's a big distinction I should say between a food bank and a food pantry. 
So at Ternary Food Bank, we are truly a distribution center. So we have 170 grocery store partners and the government, as I mentioned, and the public uh, food that is donated, and we inventory and we shelve and store the product, and then we turn that product around into smaller quantities that are suitable for a food pantry. So we assemble smaller quantities. Uh, the pantries can go online to our website and order groceries just as you would from a grocery store. And then either we are distributing that to the pantry, meaning we are trucking it to the pantry location, or in some cases the pantry comes to us to pick up. So we serve 330, I think now we're up to 350 uh, pantries uh, that are in the community. So these are not-for-profit organizations like the Boys and Girls Club. These are churches, um, um, many, 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 many different types of pantries that are that are in our community, and they act as the front line. So they are uh, taking the food that we provide to them, and they are distributing it to the people in their community who need the food from us. And, and the, the benefit of that is because of these multiple locations, uh, anybody who needs food can find a pantry in their neighborhood. So if transportation is an issue, which is a great barrier to food security if you don't have transportation, um, they can find something that's there local to them. So as the um, CEO, you are uh, tasked with uh, looking at the distribution and the different places that you deliver the, the, the food to. You're kind of at the top coordinating, making sure that all these areas get the amount of food that they need, which obviously, as, as we'll speak about uh, in, in just a bit, has increased greatly in the last few months. Right, that's right. So I'm, I'm coordinating. I have a team. You know, we have a, a staff of about 80 people here at Terran Area Food Bank. And so um, I have a great team that's, it, that is helping to coordinate, you know, where the food should be distributed, but also um, soliciting the donations. I mean, we're very dependent on our grocery store partners and our manufacturing partners. I have a team who works on, um, you know, those relationships and letting uh, those those partners know uh the needs that we have to serve the community. How many um, children do you typically serve? Because I, I, that figure is quite high, I would imagine. Yeah, um, one in four children in the greater Fort Worth area does not have enough food to eat. Um, and so I you know, c- cannot tell you the, the total number off the top of my head, but it's one in four. Wow. And um, right now, I mean, you, you look after the, uh, the long-term unemployed. You, you must have had to have put some things in place um, for the excessively high numbers of unemployed people since COVID-19. That's right. Um, we had to react pretty, pretty quickly, and we saw a uh, distribution increase um, of, you know, right away of about 80%. That is now kind of leveled off, and we're somewhere in the 60% range. Mm. And what I'm hearing from my counterparts at other food banks across the country, they're experiencing um, the same types of increases, and we are all anticipating that we will have this volume increase um, until the economy can fully recover and people can go back to work, which is a, you know, a 24-month proposition. Mm. Now, even before COVID, uh, Terranaria Food Bank was experiencing increased uh, needs for our services and food because 
the area has uh, has been growing. And so I think I think at, you know before COVID we were the the 13th fastest growing city in the nation. And so with population growth uh, comes uh, food insecurity. And yeah. so we already were looking at well how what are we going to do to expand our services to provide to our community and then. Uh, the devastation of of the COVID has just exasperated that situation. And how fast uh, did you see the reaction to COVID? Was it immediate? Because I feel that from from, from a perspective of watching it on the news, initially people knew there was this virus and it was kind of downplayed and then it became more serious. And and obviously we're in the situation where we are now a a couple of months into into it. How did that play out in terms of how fast you had to move and the needs of people that uh, that utilise your food banks? Well, I remember it well. It was uh, Friday, March 13th, when we realized, uh-oh, we've got a problem here. Mm. And um, so we started immediately um, doing things to protect our own staff and our own services, because if something, you know, if, if we had the COVID virus in our food bank, you can imagine the ripple effect that that would have on all the people that we serve. So we immediately closed our doors to the public. We, we rely very, very heavily on volunteers to support our efforts. And we made the decision uh, not to take volunteers in. And the staff here, you know, the 80 people or so that I referenced earlier, um, started uh, working in the distribution center and doing the work that our volunteers would normally do. Concurrent to that, um, I reached out to Tim Love and John Bonnell and some others that are in the hospitality industry as I was learning that they were laying some of their teams off. And in fact, they, they did complete layoffs at that, at that point and worked to bring um, displaced hospitality workers uh, onto our payroll as contract employees, um, knowing that when the, when the crisis was over, that they would return to their jobs that could come to work for Tarantaria Food Bank in, in the meantime and help us out. So we hired... 15 uh, contract employees that helped us um, get through that that patch or that period. Mm. And and so March, there was an uptick. So from that March 13th through the end, there was an uptick. But when it really, really came to bear was the first two weeks in April. And that's when we saw that 80% increase because that's, you know, when people were, okay, um, whatever I had in my checking account's not there and I've lost my job and I don't yet have unemployment insurance that takes some time, you know, to process and to get paid. Yeah. Um, and so that we saw this, you know, this big spike uh, the first two weeks in April, and then it, start com- it started coming down. And I think the reason why it started coming down at that point is because the unemployment insurance checks started arriving and people had access to money that they could go buy their own groceries. But yeah. nonetheless, we're still around, as I said, about 60 percent. Um, is is kind of how it's leveled out higher than pre-COVID distribution. Yeah, I, th- I think I read on the website uh, food distribution increased 65% since March. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now, in those circumstances, as the person who has to decide how you're going to get through this crisis, how how, how do you figure that out? Because I'm, I'm guessing you, you'll have periods where there's more demand for food and less demand for food. But in a situation where, you know, all of the restaurants and the, you know, the, the regular food industries basically shut down, your one can't because you're there for people who are really in need. And suddenly you're, you're dealing with that more than ever. So in terms of the, you know, the process, 
process of, um, of of learning to adapt, you know, making sure that your workers are safe and that you're, you're getting enough food in. How did you navigate those waters? Because it must have been so difficult. Right. I mean, I knew right away that we would be classified as essential. And sure enough, the governor had um, specified that in his declaration. And, and I knew that would be the case. I mean, you, they, the community needs us um, always, mm. and especially in times of crisis. And so I, I you know, gathered um, the team and just said, well, you know, we're going to follow the CDC guidelines. We're going to follow the state and local public health department guidelines in terms of what we can and cannot do. Um, I knew that we needed to... Uh, discontinue anything that we were getting directly from the public, the volunteers, as well as food being brought in from individual donors. We discontinued that, mm. uh, closing our doors um, and asking, you know, the, the entire team, all hands on deck and following the CDC guidelines as they related to, um, you know, social distancing, sanitation, um, personal protective equipment, um, with temperature checks, um, you know, asking people, you know, you cannot travel. Um, I, all of my employees who were in the high-risk categories, whether they are immune-compromised or um, in the 65 or older age group, I asked them to stay home and uh, take sick leave um, so that uh, they would not be exposed um, or potentially exposed. I didn't want that on my watch. Mm. Uh, and I'm happy to say that we have had no cases of covid on our, our team. We discontinued anything that was going on in the public. We have a community garden that we service. We do Cooking Matters classes. Um, all of that was discontinued. Um, agency visits where we do inspections of our agency partners, the pantries that are out in the community. I discontinued anything that would expose my staff to um, the, you know, the virus mm. uh, so that we could all remain healthy. Cause it, and this did actually happen in some other food banks across the country. If you have one employee who is diagnosed with it or becomes sick with it, there's a potential, of course, for anybody that that employee has been near to also um, be a carrier or um, you know, become sick with the COVID virus. And so I, I just didn't want to take any chances with any of my team getting sick or exposing anybody else. And um, huh, some of them probably didn't appreciate the guardrails that went up, but I just, <laughs> I didn't want anybody like, you know, no travel. And when you come in after the weekend, you've got to have your temperature checked. And um, I was pretty rigid about that. That was my number one priority, just to make sure that the team was not exposed because I know I, you know, personally, uh, did not want that to happen under my watch, and and um, I, I certainly didn't want to do anything to compromise the support that we provide to the community. Yeah. Now, in terms of uh, not being able to take um, food from the public during that period, how how did you make sure that you had enough food? So the amount that you're that you would regularly have coming in from donations has obviously gone down, and the demand has massively increased. You know, we have been really fortunate in that regard. Uh, we have very strong relationships with 170 grocer partners. So what we experienced in terms of a downturn was the, the local store donation. So if I went up to, I don't know, uh, Central Market on Hewlin, they may not be able to give me uh, the same amount of volume 
of product as they did pre-COVID. I mean, if you think about when this all first happened, people were hoarding food and um, grocery shelves were empty. So mm. in-store, that's what we call in-store donations, definitely took a hit. But the large distribution centers like um, Tom Thumb, HEB, Kroger, Albertsons, many of which are right here in the DFW area, uh, their loads continued uh, at the same rate, in some instances at higher rates. And then manufacturers, so the Dan and Yogurt store or, um, you know, the, the milk producer, those um, types of manufacturing facilities um, maintained and in some cases increased. And then we had all the restaurants that were closing their doors because of COVID had food in their coolers and freezers and in their dry stores, and we received many um, uh, retail uh, food service store donations. And we don't typically see a lot of that, but and these these others in the community that know us uh, were knew that you know they didn't want to throw food away when people were in need, and yeah. so we received an increase there. And then finally, the government stepped in. You know, it took, it took some time. Um, Feeding America and Feeding Texas really had to rally on behalf of the 200 food banks, and they did. And uh, the federal government stepped in, and um, as a result of COVID and farmers not being able to export their goods, there was a lot of food in surplus there that needed to be redirected. And so USDA and TDA stepped in, and they redirected um, many of, of that product to um, – to the 200 food banks across the country. And we're continuing to see that and anticipate that we will have that support from the government through the summer. You must have a, a tremendous strength of mind to be able to, to, to navigate these times because a lot of people would think there's absolutely no way around this. But it, it sounds to me like, and maybe it's partly to do with, as we mentioned, the, the stuff that's on your resume from before, you looked at this and went, okay, well, all of these kind of um, resources are no longer available to us, mostly for reasons of safety, uh, but these number of people need to be fed. So was your just general mindset is I need to find a way to solve these problems because, you know, the food has to get through. That's right. Failure was not an option. Uh, and so we had to see our way through. And there's a great team here. I mean, we, we everybody stepped in and, and stepped up and pulled together and did what we needed to do to continue the service. And we, we've had, as I said, uh, significant support. We have foundations in the community that came to the rescue with additional funding so that we could hire uh, staff that was not anticipated to hire that certainly was not in our budget. Mm. Uh, the government stepped in, um, and and the staff here has done a tremendous job. What about the the charity events? Because I know that previously you would have uh, had several um, events during the the calendar year. How hard has it hit you not to be able to hold those currently? Significantly. Um, so we haven't been able to hold any. And our biggest our biggest charity event is Empty Bowls. And empty bowls was scheduled to take place um, the very next week. We had to we had to make a decision about um, pulling that. Probably probably the second hardest decision that I had to make was um, to make a decision to to cancel empty bowls. It, we typically have 3,000 or so um, members of the community who buy tickets for that. Mm. And um, we, we couldn't do it. You couldn't hold a, a, an event. We've, we've also since had to cancel um, 
a chef series that we do that correlates to empty bowls. We also have had to cancel uh, Mahjong, which was an event that we hold in April. And so the development team is looking at well, what what can we do uh, to keep our donor public engaged with our work in smaller uh, formats. Um, and so we're working on a plan for that. But we we're anticipating at least into 2021 before we can have any kind of meaningful event. And even at that juncture, probably not something on the lines of empty bowls where you have 3,000 people coming together. That's just not going to happen. When you when you get back to a time that you can have volunteers, I would imagine it's a, in some ways a tremendous experience for the people who do volunteer. You must get some great stories from volunteers in terms of what they personally get out of giving something back to the community. We do. I You know, even... And, and the public's amazing. I mean, they. Um, I think when they get closer to all the things we do, um, they're always surprised. You know, we have we have this. We I, we talk about feed the line, and shorten the line. And the feed the line activity is all the distribution and working with the pantry partners and making sure that people who need food have access to that food. Shortening the line are all the activities that we work on to help people move away from the need to have our services. And that's the, you know, community garden, how to grow your own produce so that you can grow your own produce and not worry about having to pay for it. The cooking matters classes, you know, how to prepare nutritious food uh, for yourself and your children or whomever it is that you're preparing food for. So we have a whole host of programs to support, um, you know, helping people stand on their own two feet and not need our services. Shortening the line is how I like to refer to that. Yeah. Now, right now, I mean, I guess the the three kind of areas that you generally would focus on are volunteers, food, and money donations. Where we are in late May 2020, which of those three facets is, is the most useful for the Tarrant Food Bank at the moment? Absolutely, the financial contributions, because at what we mentioned earlier, we're not able to host our fundraisers, and for that reason, the financial contribution is absolutely critical. There are some foods that we have to purchase uh, so so that we're providing a complete and balanced uh, uh, bag of groceries. Many of the food items that we purchase are for children so kid-friendly, ready-to-eat meals, and for the elderly, which actually have the same needs as the children. You know, sometimes there's not a means to cook the food, or they need what we call pop-tops, you know, easy-to-open type of products. And those items are not readily available, Mm. and oftentimes we have to purchase those items. So the funding pays for that. The funding also pays for the distribution cost, the cost of the vehicles, the cost of the fuel, getting the food out into the community where it can be closer to those who need it. Now, if people um, want to help out, what is the best way? Is it to go to your website? Yes. If people want to help out, they can go to our website. They will find our address there. There's also a donate button. If they want to do the donation online, they can handle it that way. If they want to mail something into us, the the mailing address is listed there. And even yesterday, I had an eight-year-old girl who came to the front door of the food bank with $63. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) 
So you can bring cash to the door if so you need to do that. The uh, website is uh, tafb.org if people want to uh, check it out. tafb.org. And you can find uh, details there. There are some stories there in terms of what the Tarrant Food Bank does if you uh, want to learn more. Um, also, uh, as Julie said, you can uh, donate there or just uh, find the address. You can go see Julie and uh, and, and give her t- some cash just like the, the eight-year-old did. When, when you see things like that, it must warm your heart, no matter how difficult all of this has been to, to navigate. And, you know, we're by no means done navigating COVID-19 yet. But uh, when something like that happens in an eight-year-old is at the door, and not even, you know, $60, but $63, I'm assuming every, everything the eight-year-old could afford. <laughs> Absolutely. And the sweetest note ever. So those kinds of moments just uh, are the very, very best part of the job. What did the note say? Do you remember? Oh, it was how she wished she could have done more and that she hoped that the money would be helpful. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so good. And and further down the line, I don't know whether you can put a, a timeline on this, but if people are li- listening to um, this segment and think that when, um, you know, you, you can uh, have volunteers again, they'd like to get involved, do you anticipate a, a timeline as to when uh, volunteers could be could be back working for the Tarrant Food Bank again? Well, we certainly hope soon, but we will have to really abide by uh, the CDC guidelines for social distancing, and we're not at a point to consider that. Um, I hope soon is all I can say. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm thinking as well, some of the volunteers that uh, you haven't been able to utilize recently probably want to get back involved again because of the, you know, the rewarding experiences. Again, some of these you can read about on the website. Absolutely. It's it's a great experience. I think people who have not volunteered here should uh, certainly sign up to do it uh, when the time comes. Uh, it's like nothing you've ever done before. And very, very impressive, not just what we do in the distribution center, but all the programs that we have out in the community. I know I, I've been a resident here for uh, over 25 years and I had volunteered some years ago, but was not aware of how much has evolved and how many more programs we are offering uh, to the community to help shorten the line. Yeah, definitely. Uh, once again, the website address, if you want to get any more info or just to uh, donate, is tafb.org. Okay, tafb.org, uh, which is where you can go for uh, everything we've been discussing this morning regarding the Tarrant Food Bank. Uh, Julie, I really appreciate your time and uh, your stories. Thank you very much for uh, for talking to us and uh, good luck with everything in the future. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the support. I'm Ian Camfield, hosting this week's edition of Better Living, a show about the people and organisations that make an impact around Dallas-Fort Worth. Joining us now to help our amazing senior population in DFW during this crisis, and they've been doing it for more than 55 years, is Renee Perry, the Chief Operating Officer at the Senior Source. Good morning, Renee. Good morning. How are you today? I am doing great. How are you? I am okay. Nice to be uh, speaking with you. Your mission to provide assistance to the elderly goes all the way back to 1961, right? Yes, it does. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me on your show this morning. We're happy to be here and I'm happy to visit a little bit more about the senior source and (laughs) what we've been doing in the community since 1961 and especially since everything um, has really changed in the last um, few months. 
Yeah, definitely. And obviously, it's been a big change for those people who are elderly. So if we were to put it in um, the most simplistic of terms, your mission is to provide quality of life to residents in their later life, right? Yes. Yeah, we, um, we're all about trying to improve the quality of life for older adults in the greater Dallas area, whether they're living at home in the community or they're in a nursing home setting or assisted living setting, um, just trying to assist them and meet their financial and emotional well-being needs. And in what circumstances should uh, an elderly person or maybe the family of an elderly person uh, consider uh, reaching out to you for assistance? That's a great question. So we have a lot of different programs and services for older adults and for family caregivers. You and I know people age very differently and and the needs that they have may be very different. And Mm. so, you know, we have an elder financial safety center that can help folks who um, are in need of utility assistance or who are eligible for benefits that they may not be um, signed up for or receiving. We can help them sign up for those benefits. We can help ensure that that, um, their financial needs are met and that they... um, have access to the services and the resource and resources that they need. Everything from, um, you know, their basic needs to um, connections with food banks, with food insecurity as an issue, and then working with family caregivers who are in that position where they're taking care of a loved one to both be able to meet their own needs and navigate that that caregiving journey with that older adult. The website uh, for you is theseniorsource.org. So I guess if people think they may need assistance or they're a family member of uh, someone elderly who may need assistance, that's probably the best place to go to to determine the way in which you can help. Because as you said, everyone's life experience is different. People age very differently. So I guess sometimes it it can be um, uh, difficult to know whether or not now is the point at which um, you guys can could help either the, the person in question or the family member reaching out on behalf of a person? Absolutely. People are welcome to go to our website and they'll find information from everything from um, employment assistance for older adults in need of employment to how to avoid the frauds and scams that are so prevalent right now, especially that are connected to COVID-19 activities. And so whether it's um, assisting them from frauds and scams or helping them connect with employment to just helping engage in providing and giving back. There are so many folks right now who also, you know, really want to give back to older adults and help support them. And so there's a number of different ways that we're helping engage the community to give back to older adults. Um, Talk to us a little bit about um, some of the things to be aware of regarding the fraudulent scams, because even pre-COVID-19, uh, elderly people were more susceptible to those kind of scams because they often involve technology that maybe they don't understand so well. Um, but I've been reading more uh, for everyone in general about um, the, the level of fraud that's increased since the pandemic, but specifically for the elderly community in DFW. How is that impacting? Absolutely. It is. It's already, like you said, it's already a horrible, horrible problem for older adults. Each year, more than $36 billion is taken from older adults across the country in frauds and scams. And, and unfortunately, 
now with the, the COVID-19 focus, uh, criminals who are wanting to take advantage of older adults see this as an opportunity. So it could be in the form of a phone call uh, to get your social security number or to make a payment on a, a COVID test that your doctor supposedly has already ordered for you, or it could it could be in the form of a fake stimulus check that you've received. So there are just a lot of different frauds right now going on that um, in some cases look very real. Mm. And so we would just caution everyone, if you are not sure, please give us a call. Please do a little bit more research. Um, you know, we want as many folks as possible to be protected from these frauds and scams. It's, it, it is so unfortunate that right now older adults have so much to be concerned about and are vulnerable to so many different things that I, I hate that this is one more of those, those concerns that they have to be afraid of. But unfortunately, it, it is out there, and, and it is really important to be very cautious. Yeah. When, when, I, when I was younger, I remember um, my granddad specifically sometimes just getting freaked out by something that he would receive in the post, be it some kind of bill or even something that was legitimate. And this he never had a computer or anything like that. And I remember that my mum and dad used to have to help him out with various different things because sometimes those just those scenarios mm-hmm. can be very scary for elderly people let alone right now when, you know, there's a lot of technology at play in terms of scams and a pandemic going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, tell me about um, how you have navigated um, COVID-19 since it uh, really took a hold, because the to some extent, everyone is is vulnerable, but uh, the elderly population um, more so. It, it must have been a very steep learning curve for you guys in terms of how you changed the way that you operated to keep um, not only the elderly people you look after, but your staff um, secure. Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, the entire world um, completely changed just in the course of just a few days. Um and we were certainly no different. And, you know, at the heart of wanting to provide services and wanting to continue to make a difference for folks who really continue to have very complex needs, we wanted to ensure that they are safe and wanted to make sure that we were doing everything possible to continue to meet their needs, but just in, in new or different ways. So, for example, in the past, we would have older adults come into our office and we would meet with them and go through a benefit screening process or help them um, with utility bill assistance in person. Mm. We very quickly transitioned all of that to be over the phone um, and so that folks could stay at home and be safe and, and lessen that vulnerability, but continue to get the service and the assistance that they really desperately need. So we're doing our utility bill assistance over the phone. We're providing um, frauds and scams support um, over the phone. We are um, we've transitioned for, for uh, one of our volunteer programs where we would take volunteers into nursing homes to brighten the day of residents. We know from our experience that more than half of nursing home residents never received visitors, mm. and so we really wanted to do something about that. Well, obviously, right now we're not able to go into those facilities, but it is even more important that those residents know that they're not forgotten 
and that people care about them. And so we transitioned that friendly visitor volunteer opportunity to be a virtual opportunity so that people could make notes or cards or, um, you know, just have little opportunities that they could send those notes to facilities so those residents know that they are are thought of and that they are cared about. Yeah. And um, that we've been able to uh, harness really a, a whole group of community members who are excited about that opportunity. And, and so we've already been able to make quite a difference for a number of residents and want to continue doing that um, into the through the summer as well. Can we talk a bit about um, maybe the psychological impact of COVID-19 with the elderly population? Because obviously the, the threat of the virus on the elderly um, has been quite well documented. But I was thinking of, you know, younger people have been freaking out about all of the news coverage. And sometimes you'll see things where, you know, you're telling people of the younger generations, well, just switch off the news for a day or turn off your social media or whatever it is. But, you know, I, I know in terms of um, keeping the elderly population um, safe, even when there's not a pandemic on, a lot of it is about mental stimulation and, and such like. What mm-hmm. steps have you taken in terms of their their psychological um, well-being um, in terms of, you know, them not being overwhelmed by um, COVID-19? Because if they're in a home and they're just flip, uh, flicking between uh, news channels at the moment, that for an elderly person could be even more terrifying. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think the very real fear that they're experiencing given their vulnerability to uh, COVID-19 is incredible. And then when you layer on top of that, the isolation that so many seniors are experiencing right now, um, many of them are not able to see their their family members or their loved ones that maybe they had been able to, to see in the past, that isolation it really can lead to depression and anxiety. And we have certainly seen with some of the folks that we serve, you know, we've had older adults who have been engaged in volunteer activities who aren't able to volunteer right now. And so we are making sure that we are calling and checking on those older adults each week. We've developed a new program, a Caring Callers program. So if there's an older adult who is isolated at home, and could use a call each week just to have that that human connection. Just because we're distant physically does not mean that we have to be isolated emotionally and psychologically. Yeah. And so we want to have those connections and those opportunities for older adults. And so, so um, there's also information about our Caring Callers program on our website. And so if there is an older adult who is isolated and alone and could benefit from having a call each week we would love to um, include them in our our caring callers program the caring callers program sounds like um a a great idea because i was also thinking for younger people technology has played a huge role in helping many people deal with covid19 you you often hear from people oh you know if i didn't have zoom or technology wasn't where it is in 2020 um this pandemic would be so much worse but in uh some cases and maybe a lot of cases older people aren't as good with with technology Mm -hmm. so so they don't have 
have that kind of access. I mean, the, the Caring Calls program is, is a great way to, to maybe navigate uh, around that. Have you tried to um, maybe get some uh, older people up to speed in some areas of technology to sort of, um, you know, show them what, what that could provide for them during these times? Because a lot of el- elderly people are kind of fearful of, of tech to, to some extent. Oh, ab- absolutely. You know, I think technology has allowed us to continue to work so efficiently and effectively, I think, during this time. But it's also widened that gap because you're right. The number of older adults who do not have the same level of profici- proficiency with um, various technologies, um, it, it, it's really pointing to how they are in some cases, less connected. And right now, everything requires technology, whether it's your telehealth appointment or, you know, accessing benefits or banking or, you know, you name it, Mm. it requires technology. And that creates even more problems for older adults who maybe don't have that comfort level or that familiarity. And so we had, um, before all of this, had computer classes for older adults. And so right now we're looking at how we can meet that additional demand and just ensure that older adults have some comfort with Zoom or FaceTime or, you know, using some of the, the technologies that they may have access to, but just not know how to use them. Yeah. And then also talking and thinking about how we can improve that access for older adults who may be don't have the same connection to technology or the opportunities to use technology. Uh, you know, I, I think as we've seen how effective and efficient this technology has been, we're not going to be going back to pre-COVID um, technology usage. I think it's only going to continue to increase. And so we've got to make sure that our older adults are not left behind and that they're as connected and able to use technology as possible. Is there anything so far from the coronavirus experience that you can take to set maybe a a new positive going forward? I mean, in in the world of younger people, uh, a lot of people are talking about workplaces changing now and people's abilities to work at home and maybe companies won't need as much office space and that kind of thing. So, you know, for younger generations, that could be a positive thing moving Mm -hmm. forward in terms of, you know, uh, driving down pollution and and, and so forth. But from, from, from your perspective, are there any positive takeaways from this terrible situation um, that could uh, have maybe been a learning curve for how you would look after the elderly population in DFW moving forward when things become somewhat more normal? That is a great question. And, and yes, absolutely. I think for us at the, at the senior source and working with older adults, you know, one of the things over the years that has been really challenging is that so often people don't want to talk about aging. Mm. You know, nobody wants to get old, look old, be old, talk about getting old. And and so I think as this virus has shown the increased vulnerability for older adults, there's more of a conversation and a recognition of the needs of seniors. And, and the topic of older adults seems to be more present. And so, you know, it's been incredibly gratifying to talk with individuals and with groups who are interested in making a difference and and supporting and helping older adults. And so if there's one positive that I can see 
through all of this is that older adults are more are more part of the conversation and, and the community as a whole seems more interested in supporting and serving them. And, and I really hope that that continues even as things um, transition more to a, a seemingly normal, yeah, yeah. Back to normal, whatever that looks like, <laughs> environment. Now, let's talk um, more about that time, because obviously you're very restricted in terms of what volunteers can do at the moment because of the new safety practices you've you've had to put in place. But um, as hopefully we overcome um, COVID-19 and, you know, things get back to normal a little more, I wanted to focus on, you know, where you'll be in the future based on, you know, where you have been in the past in terms of volunteers and, and how people can, can help out your program. Because one of the big things, um, I think, are the, the benefits of involving younger people um, to help the elderly, but that is often um, a two-way thing. Obviously, the the elderly people uh, like the, the the human connection. If maybe they don't have um, many family or relatives around, but also um, talk to us a bit about what a younger person gets out of um, being around the elderly and and being part of your program. Oh, I think. You know, it's it's definitely a win-win when you you talk about any kind of an intergenerational program or volunteer experience. One of our programs is a foster grandparent program where older adult volunteers are spending time with um, within school settings or early education settings, and just really being a grandparent figure, tutoring, mentoring young kids, and for many of the kids that they've served, those kids don't have a grandparent figure in the town where they live. They're, you know, their grandparents may live out of state, and so having someone, or they may not even be living, and so having someone who is a grandparent figure who is telling you you can do it and encouraging you and supporting you makes a huge difference for kids. And so, you know, we're we're certainly hopeful that at some point in the near future, our volunteers will be able to have those kinds of experiences with with the kids that they are serving and and in the classrooms where they're serving. But, you know, in the meantime, we want to ensure that our our volunteers are safe. We want to ensure the safety, certainly, of the children that that we're serving. And, um, you know, we're looking at ways where technology can maybe bridge a divide and, and, you know, maybe it is through virtual... um, tutoring or um, storybook time, reading stories or, um, you know, through a, a Skype or a Zoom kind of situation. And so we're, we're definitely working with our community partners to explore different ways that we can ensure that connection continues, hmm. but just do it in a way that is, is safe for everyone. If you uh, go to the website, the, the seniorsource.org, there are some lovely videos on there, particularly the, the ones where the, the, the kids are involved uh, with mm-hmm. the elderly members of the community. I mean, I saw a video of um, uh, there's, there's painting and art going on there and, and, and dance classes and stuff like that, and, and things that really um, bridge the gap of generations. You know, there's an elderly lady there who, uh, I, I guess when she was younger, used to be a dancer or was very into dance classes. And then, you know, she meets a younger girl who in currently is is doing the same thing, you know? I love that story so much. Yes. Yeah. It's a beautiful representation of just how, how important and vital our older adults can be to, the younger generation, and then just also how 
the younger generation has has energy and enthusiasm to share with older adults as well. Yeah, and I think as well, in terms of it being a two-way street, um, the younger generation maybe can help out a little bit with, um, well, I guess specifically technology as Mm -hmm. far as the older people are concerned. But anyone of a certain age, and they don't have to be very old, will tell you that there's, there's no substitute for life experience and obviously the people that you're dealing with have have that you know in there's bucket loads of of life experience so just in terms of the aspects of storytelling and mm-hmm. the idea of being a younger person spending time with uh, w- with an older person i think you know that the older person gets that human contact but i bet in many cases the younger people actually get some really good advice. Even if they didn't go into the situation thinking that that was what they needed, they could come away more worldly wise or with a a greater perspective on so much stuff. Oh, absolutely. I think you are, you are are right on with that, that point. Uh, Just that life experience and that wisdom there is no substitute for that. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about um, the benefits of mental stimulation um, extending life, because you are dealing with some some very elderly people, and in a lot of cases there will be physical ailments. Obviously, at the moment, everyone is concerned with protecting mm-hmm. themselves from from COVID nineteen. But just on a, a basis of the the power of the mind, there's a lot to be said for that. And if you can provide the mental stimulation. You know, to to, to well to mm-hmm. keep people around for longer, I guess. Oh, absolutely, and I think there are a, a number of different studies that show that as people, after someone retires, what they do after retirement makes a huge difference to their physical health. And if you go home and just sit, and you are not retiring to something, you're simply retiring from something your health begins to decline. And so we want to make sure that we're connecting people with opportunities to give back, to be involved in volunteerism, to um, look at new career opportunities, if that's something that's of interest to an older adult, and, and really just making sure that people are staying active and involved and engaged as they age. Mm-hmm. And it really is a, a key thing because I, I guess in some cases, uh, elderly people don't necessarily realize that that's something that would make them happy or happier until they're in that scenario of really enjoying and embracing later life as best they can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And our, our older adult volunteers tell us all the time that that meaningfulness and that purpose and and reason to get up and that people are counting on them makes such a huge difference. And and as they experience losses in their life or health issues of their own, having those, those people and the activities that keep them engaged makes such a huge difference. And it, it makes a huge difference for our community as a whole when older adults are able to give back and to make a meaningful difference. Yeah. You also um, have, you know, when things are more normal, uh, some activities that uh, maybe would uh, surprise a number of people. And again, I urge you to go to the the website, theseniorsource.org, to get more information on this. But I was particularly impressed by the 50 over 50 skydive. <laughs> 
Yes, that was something that we did a number of years ago. And we our goal was to have 50 people over the age of 50 to skydive to celebrate our our 50th birthday as the, of the senior source. And right. We actually um, exceeded that goal and had um, more than 50 people who jumped. And I remember one gentleman said that he had not jumped out of an airplane since he was in World War II. He was a paratrooper in World War II. And this was the first time since then. And, and obviously it was a really special day for him and, and for everyone who participated. And I think it's just one of the ways that we want to make sure that the community and make sure that people are not just stereotyping older adults mm. or putting limits on what they're able to do, but looking at the just the incredible life of older adults and, and recognizing their capabilities and, and all of the different ways that they can continue to age. That is a, a, tr- a tremendous example. I would have loved to have been in the boardroom where you sat around to discuss ideas and someone went, do you think we could get some people to skydive? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there, not everybody was on board right away. I'm not but, surprised. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It sounds to me like the kind of idea that someone may have had on the day off after having a little bit too much wine, and then when, when, when they were kind of sober in the week were kind of thinking, I wonder if it's appropriate to bring this up, I, you know, just to see what kind of reaction that, uh, that that you got. And then the idea that you, you know, as you said, it was for the, the 50th uh, birthday of the organisation, but to tie in all aspects of 50, so not only people over 50, but that you required 50 individuals to do it. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was such a great experience. I'm sure. Now, um, looking forward to the future when hopefully we can um, get uh, p- past COVID-19, there will be lots of um, different things that um, volunteers and people in the DFW community um, can get involved with. And, and I feel like everything coronavirus related is, is changing fr- from week to week. So probably the, the best thing for people to do in terms of uh, moving forward is to, to keep checking the website. Um, but right now, what, what are you in need of uh, the most currently? How can people help um, the senior source if they wanted to at this present time? Well, right now, our needs relate to, one, just showing residents and facilities that they are cared about. And so we are, our virtual friendly visitor opportunity is on our website where people can um, write cards and notes and share with residents. There's also an opportunity to donate reusable, washable masks that we're sharing with the older adults we serve, um, and that is a huge need. Um, and then also, we're able to meet some of the basic needs of our older adults through e-gift cards. And so we're able to take that gift card from, say, walmart.com or amazon.com and purchase those basic needs and have them delivered to the senior um, in need. And so those are all identified needs on our website right now. And then, you know, over time, as things change, there will continue to be needs. They just may look a little bit differently. So um, people can always go to our website to see what, what the latest um, opportunity to support and get involved and, and help older adults. And uh, the chances of any more skydives in the future, is, is that, <laughs> was that a once-in-a-lifetime thing? Or are you thinking, we, I mean, have you got residents now that are going, when is the skydive going to happen again? I'm up for that. <laughs> You know, you never know. So stay tuned. (laughs) 
<laughs> Excellent. Uh, Renee, I really appreciate your time. Once again, if people want to learn more about uh, the services that you offer and uh, and how they can get involved right now, because uh, obviously the elderly, as, we, as we've been saying, are particularly vulnerable and need our help um, more than uh, many uh, parts of society at the moment. Uh, the website is theseniorsource.org. Okay, theseniorsource.org. Um, good luck with the future and uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Well, that is just about it for another edition of Better Living. Thank you very much to Julie Butner, the president and CEO from the Tarrant Area Food Bank, and also to Renee Perry, chief operating officer at the Senior Source. They were our guests today. I'm Ian Camfield, normally from afternoons on Alt 1037. Thank you for listening today. Please join us at this time next week for more organisations doing great things in our community on Better Living.